This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Hello and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Vinganza Media podcast about everything in print. This is Stuart in LA, your host for the Philip K. Dick book retrospective in correspondence with the now playing podcast, Philip K. Dick movie retrospective. That's right. We're going to be reading all of the works that inspired the Hollywood movies. And this is exciting for me because I've always had great esteem for Philip K. Dick. He's a big science fiction author, and he's inspired lots of directors and writers that I like. But I have never actually read the work, so you'll be experiencing my first impressions of some of the inspirations for some great movies. We're starting out with Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the source material for Blade Runner. It's a big one for Philip K. Dick. He was an established writer at this point. He had been writing and published well over a decade. And at the same time, he was in an enormous amount of debt. He was struggling in a new marriage. He was experimenting with LSD. He was having religious visions and a curious interest in religious experience. And he was living in San Francisco, heading into the Summer of Love with the hippie pilgrimage and the war protests. All of that is going to play a factor in this novel. As I was reading it, it felt very autobiographical, knowing what I knew about Dick. And so you're not going to find the words Blade Runner in the novel, and I'm going to try and limit my comments about Blade Runner, the movie, in this podcast. This podcast is specifically about my impressions of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And if you want to know what I think about the Ridley Scott movie, and I'm a fan, you can go to Now Playing and hear that. Now, it's hard for me to put that all aside because Ridley Scott's vision is so powerful. As I was reading this story, there was no way that I couldn't see... Harrison Ford, Sean Young, Rutger Hauer, they just have an indelible impression. So I really struggled with trying to wipe them from my mind and not see this as a novelization of the movie. Fortunately, they are somewhat different as works. The basic story is the same. Our main character is Rick Deckard. He is a bounty hunter, not a Blade Runner who is working in San Francisco trying to hunt down six androids. They're not called replicants. They're called androids or Andes for shorts. He wants to retire them. They don't use the word kill because that implies Andes are alive. And that's definitely not the mentality of people in 21st century San Francisco. Androids are machines. They are slaves, and they are not to be thought of with the same characteristics of organisms and living beings. Now, as Rick is going about his task, he does begin to question the difference between organic and artificial life. And more importantly, he begins to question the religious movement of the moment, which is called mercerism. That's something you're not going to find in the movie at all. But there is a prophet who comes to people both on Earth 
and in the off-world colonies on Mars, the moon, elsewhere in the universe, through a device called a mood organ. And he preaches empathy. Empathy is the most important thing a living being can express, partly because it cannot be expressed by an android. Androids don't have the capacity to care about each other, about animals, about humans, and therefore that makes them lesser. It creates a caste system. Mercerism is something you're not going to find in the movie at all. It was definitely something that is just here in the novel. And so Mercer wants everyone to have animals. He wants everyone to care for the animals and to unite together through a device called a mood organ so that they are all as one during a crucial moment in his realization as a messiah he was walking up a hill and someone was throwing stones at him and he came to a religious epiphany and that moment plays out again and again when you tap into the mood organ you are a part with mercer in his moment of pain and solitude and thereby united with all living things in the universe now, Rick Deckard is taking up the task of retiring the last six of eight Nexus 6 androids that have rebelled. They have left their colonies and their masters, and they have come to Earth, I assume, to have some kind of better quality of life in which they are not at the whims and subjugation of humans. They have alternate identities, and Rick has to find them. Now, it's not really that hard for him to do. One of the strange surprises of the story is that there's not much sleuthing involved. He has a list of names, and he basically goes from one to the next, and they're pretty much there, and within a page or two, he's retired them. Not a lot of action, not a lot of mystery. It actually becomes more of a compulsion. Rick is obsessed with killing all of them in a day so that he can get the money he needs to buy an animal. In San Francisco in the future, even though you're not living on a farm, everyone has living animals because of mercerism on the roofs, wherever they can keep them. You can go up onto the rooftop and see a horse, a goat, what have you. Rick is ashamed because his sheep died and he had to replace it with an artificial sheep. But you can't care about artificial life. You can't have empathy for artificial life the way that you can real life, according to Mercer. So he is trying to get the money to buy a goat and thus restore a balance in his marriage, improve his status with his neighbors, and essentially get over a huge inferiority complex that he has about where he's doing and who he is in this world. We don't know everything that has happened to the Earth, but we do know that there was something called World War Terminus that produced a dust that blocked out the sun, that killed off most of the animals, thus why they're highly valued, the ones that are alive, and that there is a syndrome in which people slowly lose their mental faculties and become, the slang term is, chicken-headed. They are no longer able to think as human beings do, and they are, I suppose, for lack of a better word, mentally retarded. And one of those chicken heads is also a major character in the novel. His name is John R. Isidore. If you want to kind of reference him in Blade Runner, he's kind of like J.R. Sebastian, but not. And he is as much a part of the story as Rick Deckard. We see him 
struggling in his menial life, trying to just drive a van to repair artificial animals and really dealing with the fact that he used to be able to be smart and think and knowing now that he can't. And he meets a neighbor named Pris, who eventually turns out to be one of the Nexus androids that Rick Deckard is tracking and her friends. And he tries to romance her and finds out in his own way how they don't have the ability to have empathy. He eventually turns against them when they take a living spider, which, again, all living thing, things that are alive, no matter how grotesque we might find them in current day, are highly revered in the future because they are alive. And they take a spider and cut off its legs just to see what it's going to do. So while Isidore is romancing Pris, we also have the character of Rachel. And yes... There are many exchanges between Rachel and Deckard that are taken word for word and put into the Blade Runner script. When he's giving her the Voight comp in the movie, some of those questions are identical. But if you're expecting these two to run away together, like I was, you're going to be surprised at how things turn out. It turns out Rachel, while she is a secretary for the robotic engineering company, now based in Seattle... She is also a Nexus 6 replicant whose mode of operation is to seduce bounty hunters and by having a sexual experience with them, take away their ability to kill. Once they have sex with her, they actually are not able to pull the trigger anymore. And that's what she's hoping to do with Rick Decker. That's how she's hoping to protect herself and other renegade Nexus 6 models. Rick does end up finishing his job and his assignments. He does come to Isidore's house and finishes Roy Batty and Pris and all of the other ones, kind of like the movie, although far less dramatic. And Rachel, angry that her seduction plot did not work, takes the goat that he buys with all of his bounty hunter money and throws it off the roof. And so he is left again without an animal. Depressed, Rick Deckard goes out into the desert, has an experience in which he thinks he connects with Mercer, only to return and find out that Mercer has been exposed as a sham. There is sort of a, I guess you would call it a 21st minstrel show involving androids. It's Buster Friendly and his friendly friends, is what it's called. It sounds a little bit like Pee-wee's Playhouse, but they're androids on TV and radio that kind of shuck and jive and tell really corny jokes. They have exposed the fact that the mood organ... The Mercer that everyone thinks they know and are connecting to is actually an actor in Indiana, and he is a sham prophet. You're really left with the feeling that the idea that we think we're so special because we are alive is debunked. We're not as special as we might like to think. And there is a sober quality to the end, even though it is quite different from Blade Runner. There is a depressing downbeat. There's not much difference between robotic and human life sentiment that permeates the novel as well. I've got to say, at first I struggle with the writing style of Philip K. Dick, not because he chooses difficult words, but because there is so much slang here. There is so much of the way that he builds the world around concepts. And it can be a little intimidating at first. Within the first chapter, you're hearing about Mercer, mood organs, cod pieces, conap. It's difficult to understand. I found myself having to go back and read and reread things that, that did not make sense upon 
my initial going through it, but as you get halfway into the story, you're like, oh, they wear cod pieces because of the dust makes people sterile. And so there's a lot of finding things out after the fact. It, it takes a while to steep yourself in this future world. And I think that's a good thing eventually, but it can be rough going. I would say if you think that you're not going to get through it in the first 20 pages, keep at it. You will eventually get into the mindset that Philip K. Dick brilliantly sets up. But it takes a while. Even having seen Blade Runner as much as I have, there was a lot of foreign concepts to me and a lot of things that I struggle to visualize and understand. I also got to say, this one is not written to be a pulp adventure. You know, this is a private detective, and I thought it was strange that he was married and worried about his social status. That's not something you usually see with a private detective. Usually they're solo stag guys that live on the fringe. They live in the underbelly. They know that all of that stuff. They don't care whether their friends think they're cool because they have a goat or not. And so uh, I found all of this very strange, but it was probably a personal touch. It was probably how Philip K. Dick felt. He had at that point established a rapport with other science fiction writers in the Bay Area. He had had a new wife. There, A lot of his anxieties about needing to publish again and again feel very much like Rick's compulsion to kill and kill and kill and get more money. So it's much more understandable in that as an autobiographical work. But as a pulp adventure, I got to say, there's not much mystery to the way that he finds the Andes. He has a list. He tracks them down. Some are more interesting than others. Max Polakoff is one that pretends to be a Russian operative. Luba Luft is an opera singer. She's kind of like Zora and the Snake Dance, a little higher class version of that. My favorite encounter he has with Andes is the time that they bring up the idea that he may be uh, an android. It's the only time they play with it. The movie is an open-ended question, but here they resolve that he's not. But for a little bit, he's taken into a police station and told by superior officers that they know every bounty hunter, and he's not on the list. And that probably makes him an Andy who has a memory implant. And eventually you find out this is a sham police office, and this is how androids are trying to play a trick on him and get him. And some of them realize that they're Andes and some of them don't. I like the way that that all played out. I thought that was a really nice surprise. It's not in the movie. It plays out very well. It answers the question about whether Rick is a, an android or not satisfyingly and creates some suspense for him. Eventually, the disappointment I had was when he eventually meets up in Isidore's house and takes out Roy Batty, Chris, and the remaining Andes. It's really an afterthought. You don't have any great speeches like Redger Howard gives on top of the skyscraper talking about mortality and really bringing the themes to a close. Here, it's just it's just another assignment. It's just another kill. And even what Rachel did to him doesn't seem to have any real impact on his ability to do his job and retire these androids. In the end, I found the novel to be a great complement to the movie, neither better nor worse than the movie. It opens up things, it answers subtext, but it doesn't really stand on its own. I think that if I didn't know Blade Runner, and if I didn't have the love I did for Blade Runner, I'm not sure what I would make of this novel. It seems to have a lot of interesting ideas, but it's not really a great detective story. And I think without having that component, it just ends up being a, a strange religious parable. 
And that can only get you so far. It's That's only a subtext. I don't think that it's shaped in a way that it feels like a satisfying story. So my review is that I think if you are a fan of Blade Runner or if you want to have some answers to some of the lingering questions of Ridley Scott's movie, you will find them in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? But if you're looking for a pulp detective novel or a pulp science fiction action story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is no more exciting than maybe Blade Runner is. They are both morose, somber works about mortality and religion and try to answer the big questions. And I think that if you're looking for entertainment, you might find androids an even bigger struggle than Blade Runner. Well, thanks for joining me on this 210-page story, but don't worry, they're not all going to be this long. Next up is the inspiration for Total Recall, the Arnold Schwarzenegger 1990 action spectacular. We'll be reviewing that next week on NowPlayingPodcast.com. On Books and Nachos next week, we'll be looking at the source material, short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. And it's only a little over 20 pages long, so everyone hopefully can find that in the next week. Read it and be prepared. If you have any comments or your own thoughts on the novel, I'd love to hear them. You can go to our forums, post it there. I will do my best to take it in and respond in a timely manner. And until then, keep reading. Thanks for joining me, and we'll see you next week for We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2010, Venganza Media Incorporated. Music